Welcome to the Real Change series on the Meta Hour with Sharon Salzberg. Inspired by Sharon's newest book, Real Change, this series features conversations with activists, artists, and teachers, all discussing the intersection of meditation and social action. To learn more, visit realchangebook.com. Hi, I'm Sharon Salzberg, and today I'm speaking with my friend and colleague, Soren Gordhammer. Soren is the founder and host of Wisdom 2.0 and the author of the book by the same name, Wisdom 2.0, which was one of the first books to explore living with mindfulness and wisdom within the context of our modern technology age. Soren works with individuals and groups in living with greater mindfulness and purpose in our technology-rich age. He's spoken on or taught mindfulness to people around the world from youth in New York City's juvenile halls to trauma workers in Rwanda to staff at Google's corporate headquarters. It's a great delight to welcome you to the Meta Hour, Soren. I am so glad to be here, Sharon. It's an honor. Well, thank you. We are really old friends. And yeah. I, I think often about meeting in New York. And mm-hmm. um, long before Wisdom 2.0, you founded an organization called the Lineage Project. So maybe you could say something about that. Sure. Well, I have a Sharon story and I'll weave that in. (laughs) But I came to New York really not knowing anyone. I had, uh, or very few people, and I had started working with juvenile hall kids in in the Bay Area with uh, Noah Levine, who uh, was a friend at the time. And there was work inside with prisoners, but there was nobody working with young people. And I just thought that was kind of odd. Like, why would you not want to support, you know, teenagers going through all the changes that they're going through in some kind of mindfulness or meditative way. Uh, And so I remember um, I was doing that for a few years in California, just kind of volunteering, trying to figure things out. And then uh, my wife at the time wanted to move to New York City to go to art school, go to School of Visual Arts. So I was like, okay, let's go. But I have no idea how I'm going to kind of manage in New York. Um, And somehow... um, I got connected to Jennifer Greenfield, who's running the, um, or you connected me to Jennifer Greenfield, who was running the Richard Gere Foundation at the time. And um, somehow, I can't even remember how we got connected, Sharon. Somebody must have connected us. Um, yeah, you came up to me. I was teaching a class at um, this place on like 31st Street or something yeah. like that. And you just came up and started talking to me. Oh, and you just welcomed me. Yeah. <laughs> hey, I know who you should talk to. I know who you should meet. Yeah, so you connected me to a number of different people that ended up helping us get uh, funding to launch uh, the Lineage Project, the nonprofit, into uh, New York City. And it's still going today, 20 years later. And um, I remember you were one of the very first people I met in there. And I kept thinking, she's, 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 in, she's like um, introducing me to these friends of hers, that, and she doesn't know anything about me. <laughs> I thought that was really weird. Like, I could be anybody. And she's just like, sure, of course, we'll talk to this person. I'm like, shouldn't you like check, do a background check or something on me first? Well, um, actually, I describe you in an interesting way, uh, much more than I. And um, the Lineage Project uh, was bringing the tools of yoga and meditation mm-hmm. to, you could say, at-risk youth. Yeah. You know, a lot of people don't like that phrase. but um, And I remember meeting uh, someone on your board, Paco. 
Oh, who yeah. is actually uh, interviewed in my book, Real Change. He's an oh, activist, really? Zen yeah. priest, and um, he's from Puerto Rico. And I was at some fundraising function you were having, and he and I were talking, and and he was saying, I don't know, I kept telling Soren, like, you can't go into that neighborhood, <laughs> you know? Like, <laughs> you're a skinny white guy. You, can, you really shouldn't go. But he just went. He just goes. And it's like he goes where angels fear to tread. And I said, Soren is one of God's children. <laughs> you have to think of him. He's just going to go. And he may not even know why, you know, or exactly what he's going to do there. But he knows he has to go. And, and it's all going to work out. It did. There were some, you know, tense moments at times, but in general, it really worked out. And I think sometimes it's helpful to be a little naive, not too naive, um, but a little naive. And it's so interesting that a lot of those connections I made with Paco, with you, um, Angel Kyoto Williams, and I taught Mm -hmm. a class for about a year together at the Brooklyn Juvenile Hall. Um, There's a lot of really beautiful people I've, I've, I got to meet during that time. And, you know, I tell the kids when we were inside that, you know, if you, if you, if you study myths and mythology, often what is most precious is hidden where people are most unlikely to look for it, right? So the, the, the amazing um, jewel is kind of hidden in an old locket that looks worthless, or, you know, the, the uh, most precious stone is, is um, put in a, a riverbed that looks very similar to others. And I said, you know, in the same way, you all have what's most precious inside you, even if the world doesn't see it. Like there's mm-hmm. something inside you that's very precious. And I think, Sharon, your work around loving kindness and around compassion, loving kindness towards oneself and towards others, I think really helped inspire, you know, that orientation that I had, which was like, what am I doing there? Am I teaching them to meditate? Am I teaching them to do this, do that? And the whole piece around what it's like to engage with the loving heart and actually turn to ourselves and offer ourselves forgiveness and offer ourselves our own tender kind of kindness, that actually seemed almost more important and what was needed than, you know, folk, here's, here's the notice what's going on with your breath and stay open to whatever is arising, which was also super useful. But there was a heartfulness that I think so many of us are hungry for and kids in general are hungry for. But you have kids who are inside who often haven't been really um, cared for in a certain way. And I remember one time I was going to this juvenile hall and um, there was this kid and during the meditation, he would be looking around and his eyes would be open and he just wouldn't be doing the meditations much at all. And we'd do some yoga and some movement and he'd not engaged at all. And at the end of the class, every time he would come up and say thank you and give me a little hug. Like, like not a huge bear hug, but like it was a, it was a sweet little hug. And, and then I started getting frustrated with him over the weeks. Cause I'm like, dude, why do you keep coming here and thanking me at the end? And it's like, you don't even pay attention. You don't like try, like I start notice this frustration arising in me. And then it hit me. He doesn't come to the class for the meditation or the yoga. He right. comes for that hug. Yeah. And he doesn't yeah. have the problem. I have the problem. Just like be with him in what he needs in that moment. And um, I learned so much from those kids about what it's like to be genuine. And they would never give a compliment if they didn't feel it. He never had to question, <laughs> are they just being nice to me? Or like compliments were hard earned, but they were they came with a lot of a lot of uh, respect. And um I look back at that time and it was such a beautiful way to be kind of 
introduced to what it means to teach. And uh, the kids just are always in my heart and taught me so much about life and purpose and meaning and stories that I would never have heard otherwise. Um, and sometimes we'd get talking and they'd be like, all right, who do you think we are when you walk in here? Like, how do you see us? And I would kind of tell them and I'm like, how do you see me? And they'd have all these stories about me, you know, that were totally <laughs> off. Um, but, but, you know, they hadn't met a lot of white people and, or not in non-authoritarian white, or, you know, not white people who are the teachers or the judge or the attorney or something. And so we got some really, a really beautiful chance at times just to get to know one another. And um, I just learned so much from them. That's beautiful. So I've always known you as an activist. I've always thought of you as an activist. And and yet, you know, probably the largest um, part of your bio, which I just read, has to do with Wisdom 2.0, which is a kind of activism as well, isn't it? Yeah, you know, I'm always, for some reason, I'm called to different groups that you would look at and go, eh, I don't think wisdom, mindfulness, compassion stuff kind of works with that group, you know? So, so one of God's children, he just jumps right yeah, in. Like, right. I was drawn to juvenile hall kids and people are like, really? I don't really see the connection. I don't, you know, how do you see that? And then that kind of had its own momentum and other people started taking over and teaching and doing things. And for some reason, Sharon, I have no idea how this came about. I was then drawn to the tech world. Um, so I was like working with some of like the the poorest people on the planet mm-hmm. or in the U.S. to then this whole tech world where there's most some of the most influential people on the planet. And to me, it was just being called. I had to follow the call. Like I was fascinated by technology. I was fascinated by the impact it was having on our lives. Um you know, it was just when we were starting to get kind of smartphones and being able to communicate. And there was this whole world that was opening. And I became really interested in whether mindfulness and compassion and things can relate to that world. And I also saw an opportunity that if we could get the leaders of tech that so many people look up to, to kind of begin to um, lead not only with technology, but lead as proponents and speakers of, of about wisdom and the inner journey that that could be a powerful thing. So yeah, I, I, while I still care about every group I've worked with, I was, um, I was much more drawn to the tech world and wisdom 2.0 actually came up. I was talking to a publisher and we're brainstorming names for a book and I can't remember how it all emerged, but, um, but wisdom 2.0 came and some people misunderstand it that we're trying to improve on wisdom. (laughs) Like, Oh, Oh. you want wisdom (laughs) 2.0. You're going to try and make wisdom better. Like the Buddha wasn't enough for four years. Like, no, no, no. It's, it's, it's wisdom within the modern world. 2.0 represents the modern world. You know, we're, we're looking at integrating wisdom within the modern world and that the same air that, that, um, Mother Teresa or the Buddha or Jesus breathed, you know, we breathe the same, the same wisdom teachings are around now as much as they've ever been around. It's not like they went anywhere, right? Life still Mm -hmm. teaches us so much. And so how do we apply that within this domain of screens and social networks and technology? And do we, do we become their servant or do we use it for our purpose? And I think that's, just a really important question. Like, are we serving it or are they serving us? And um, I didn't have the answer to that. I just thought it'd be good to get people together to talk about the question. Mm-hmm. And the so we've been going now 12, 12 yeah. this, if we could do the conference this year, this would be the 12th year. And, um, you know, we've had founders and CEOs of all the tech companies, uh, Facebook and, um, and uh, eBay and different 
people along with Sharon and John and Jack, you know, all the wisdom teachers and so many different people. It's been such a joy. Like, I feel like I get to throw my own party and invite, <laughs> invite all my friends and new friends. And it's just like, I just love getting people together. I don't know what it is. You know, I love, I love that feeling of like all of us in the room and it's not about one method, right? It's not like, oh, here's the one method we all need to do. It's like, wow, what do we share no matter the different approaches of our method? Like you do this, I do that, but there's something that we share. So I've always been drawn to big events and just gathering people. It just always feels really exciting for me. So how is it for you this year, this crazy year where uh, we actually cannot physically gather? It's hard. It's hard. It's interesting. So uh, for a different project, I was uh, coordinating an interview with you and David Simas, who's a mutual friend of ours, who's a, with the Obama Foundation. And and um, it was so nice to both see you on Zoom and, and you know, have him interview you. And I just loved it. And I think I remember saying at the end of that, I said, you know, Part of the reason I organize now virtual events is because I just need an excuse to to talk to people. <laughs> and um, if I was more in touch with my vulnerability, I would just say, hey, Sharon, can we just chat? Or hey, David, can we just <laughs> chat? But I'm not quite there yet. So I have to come up with an excuse like, hey, could you interview each other for this summit we're doing? Um, it worked, didn't it? It worked. Yeah, I loved it. So it may be a good, it may be a good, um, a good strategy in general. Um, but it's been, it's been hard, you know, and I, in some ways I see how the world needs a reboot and, um, how the, this is happening and it has positive, it has some really horrific repercussions, you know, to people. And it also is a lesson and a learning. Um, and I go back and forth between being very hopeful that we'll come out of this stronger. And I also have a lot of concern about, um, what happens when people don't have connection, don't have social connection and don't, can't touch each other and can't kind of be near each other. And, you know, how do we both hold the fact that there's this, you know, COVID that's super potentially deadly to people and we need to be careful of that. And then how do we also hold the fact that we're human beings who generally need Sangha and need community and how do we, how do we navigate a path forward? Um, so that to me is, is just, such an important question. And for me, it's been a, um, uh, it was great the first couple months. <laughs> I think the last few months have been hard. Yeah. Well, I mean, you are, I think, honestly, doing very important service because people, we so need that sense of connection and, and it's not going to be in the usual way. And uh, being able to have this, this sense of learning and mutuality and coming together, um, even if it's online, is is a tremendous thing because so many people are just so isolated and it's tough. It's funny. I was going through some old emails of mine to um, get uh, people's uh, information so I could send them an email and ask for their mailing address um, uh -huh. so I could send them a copy of my book, Real Change. And so I came upon this woman's uh, Happy New Year email from the <laughs> New Year's Eve, you know, the last day of uh, last year, and it was like, can't wait for 2020. <laughs> it's so nice to have a change. It's been a rough year, and like, wow, you know, being able to begin again, and it's a tremendous like New Year's Eve is my favorite <laughs> day of the whole year because tomorrow is full of possibility. And I thought, oh my god, you know, like, wait till you see. <laughs> you know, yeah, 
It's it's a whole, it just shows you how all of our plans and all of our retreats we're going to do or conferences we're going to do or places we're going to go, like, it's all up for grabs, you know? Yeah. It's all up for grabs. And I do think humanity is in an interesting place to just take a pause, you know? It's kind of stopped us in our tracks. And uh, where do we go from here? And um, it's also a really scary time, you know, with an election coming up that could be... Uh, you know, I don't, I've never been in an election before in my life where one of the candidates said that they weren't sure whether they would accept the results. <laughs> um, and I, I just feel like all of us kind of feel this tension, both from COVID, or I do, both from COVID and also from a very unstable political system, at least in the US and I think in other countries too, where um, it's it's just unstable is the best word I can describe it. Yes, let's talk about voting because um, this is a very important topic for me and it's uh, very much what I wanted to bring up with you sure. because from the perspective of um, Buddhism and meditation, not everybody gets into it. It happens to be, as you know, and I've heard me speak about many times, uh, a tremendous passion of mine. I really wow. do feel it is the clearest expression of the Buddhist teaching of the innate dignity of everybody and the innate worth of everybody and that people really have to exercise that ability to vote. And, uh, you know, I think it's tragic when people are denied that right. And, um, it means a lot to me. So I, I very much wanted to talk to you about that. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. And, um, I appreciate and applaud your efforts and your, your focus on that because, you know, it's easy to just kind of step back and say, oh, everything will work out how it's going to work out. And it doesn't need me to be a part of that. And it's all good. Everything will be perfect. And, you know, or whatever that kind of hand distance is from from the fact that each one of our actions matters and has an impact. And voting is maybe one of the few things where we can do where we're all somewhat equal in the action, right? We all have kind of an equal voice and it determines so many different things from environmental policy, climate policy, to um, funding for, for um, anything that we really care about. Like we ha- if we don't vote, it's really hard to then have a say in so many of the causes that really matter to us. And so I feel like while it's important not to see voting as the only act, and I think what you and David spoke about recently, like voting, there's voting and there's citizenship. Mm-hmm. And so it's not one or the other, but it's like voting and citizenship, right? Part of citizenship is voting. And as much as I, you know, don't like to identify myself by the country that I live in, like, oh, I'm an American and this is how America is. There's a part of me that feels like I am an American, right? I'm also not an American, but I am an American. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not an American from more of a Dharmic sense because there's no way to identify any of us in name and form. But um, but on one level, in this roles, these roles that I play in the world, uh, you know, I'm an American, and as an American, how do I want to use my voice? And voting feels like a really important way to use our voice and to make a difference, particularly for those people that we may never see or never know, mm-hmm. but whose lives depend on um, food stamps, for example, or whose lives mm-hmm. depend on funding for um, pre-K schools that may not get it if the vote goes a different way. So I feel like there's so many people who are impacted by the government 
decisions. And why wouldn't you want to do the very simple thing of registering and going down to vote to, to help them out, even if, it, even if you don't see anything for yourself? Like, why not at least do that for the people who are um, in most need of government support? And I feel like, Sharon, we're all kind of recognizing that we have to turn, there's a boat we need to turn around. (laughs) You know, there's a momentum that's happening in our culture where it's getting uglier and uglier in terms of how people treat one another. And the policies are easily getting swayed away from basic humanity. And I think the only way that that shifts is we can't expect some great new leader to come in and solve all the problems for us. I think the real way that shifts shifts is when people have a voice and voting is one of those strong ways that we can have a voice. And of course, the day after the vote, we need to continue to have a strong voice. But I'm with you in that, like, if we don't speak up, if we don't have a voice, it just means that we're not allowing ourselves to impact the world in the way that we want to impact it. Um, So that's how I see it. I'd love to know how you see it, because I know Mm -hmm. this is a passion of yours. Uh, It is a great, it's an obsession of mine. And I was once doing a program in Washington, D.C. with Congressman Tim Ryan about mindfulness, since he's a meditator. And um, I just kept talking about voting. And he finally turned to me and said, are you running for office or something? (laughs) And I thought, oh, but you are. Um, And actually, it was was in a green room uh, for one of the Wisdom 2.0 conferences in New York that David Seamus actually schooled me on because I, I was ranting on about voting as usual. And he said, that's not enough. You have to think about citizenship. Wow. Like, interesting. After, so it actually came from him. Oh, interesting. But um, yeah, yeah and it, you know, that's what I mean. You're so amazing at bringing people together, you know, so, yeah. but it does, it means a lot to me that uh, people vote and it, um, it also reflects to me not only that that Buddhist teaching on the innate dignity of everybody, but skillful means. You know, it's like yeah. people have power over you, and your choices. Uh, it's not enough to scream. I mean, the scream is a cry of pain. You know, but yeah. if there's a lever that you can be working on that can actually shift the power dynamic, you've got to use it. You got to use it. And then we have to follow through with it, I think, because if you look at how so much of the political system run, you know, it's run on on power and money. Mm-hmm. And those are the voices that get the loudest um, attention sometimes. And it frustrates me, actually, in a lot of different ways that so many of the laws, you know, that um, why some, so many of these huge corporations don't pay corporate taxes and they don't mm-hmm. pay corporate taxes under a democratic regime and they don't pay corporate taxes under a Republican regime. Um, but the only way some of these systems change, and I think I really appreciate Bernie's voice and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's voice, and I don't agree with everything they say, but I think there is a, a care, you know, in our staunchly independent, like, pick yourself up by your bootstraps. It's all about you to create your reality. You succeed or, or don't succeed based on your own actions. Like there's this American ethos that has served us well in some ways, but it's such a hindrance to this feeling of like togetherness. And as technology changes and develops and adapts and we'll have self-driving cars and we'll have robots doing all this work, like Mm -hmm. we have to figure out what a fair society looks like because there's just Mm -hmm. not going to be the kinds of jobs that you're going to see. I mean, even now between Amazon and Walmart, like so many of the small businesses that used to 
we used to go to stores and actually buy their goods um, have, have fallen away. They just can't compete. And so I think the society needs to begin to look at like what's good for the whole. Like let's not just look at what's good for Walmart or what's good for Google or Microsoft. Like what's good for the whole. And I think voting is is a beautiful step in that. And I think we need to even take that further and have laws put into place that not just represent the individual but represent the whole. And that's my that's my wish for our country going forward is that we can honor the individual, but that we can honor, honor the whole. And of course we want to help out the people who are less fortunate than us. Like it, it should feel good to help out the people less fortunate than us. It shouldn't feel like, like, oh, they're taking away from mine or I deserve this and more. And um, I mean, I can go on, but the fact that we don't have a higher percentage percentage rate is to me is mind boggling that you can make a hundred million dollars a year and you pay this. There's, there's still the the top tax bracket of what, 36% or something. I just find like, that just makes no sense to me. Mm-hmm, <laughs> it makes mm-hmm. no sense. It was written f- for a different generation where if you made $200,000, you were making a lot of money. Like now we have, I mean, how many mm-hmm. billions has Bezos made and Mark Zuckerberg made just during COVID? Like tens mm-hmm. of billions of dollars. And mm-hmm. so it just doesn't make sense to me that that money isn't more widely dispersed. And they'll say, oh, I'm going to give it away in my foundation later. Oh, I'm going to give it away. But but I'm really for the redistribution of wealth in mm-hmm. a more direct way. And I think the only way to move in that direction is with people vote and pe- and the p- political leaders realize like, oh, this is this is a demand. Like this is something that really needs to happen. We need to focus not on the the people who are funding our campaigns or the people who kind of have the power. We need to, we need to focus on what's fair for common humanity. And so that's my, that's what I'm really passionate about now, actually. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, it seems it's not much of a life otherwise, you know, even for the people with tremendous wealth, because I mean, you have to drive on a road or, you know, there, there's there's infrastructure that needs to be maintained and that, you're counting on, you know, I, I think if anything, this time should really reveal a lot about interconnection and how much we count on people farming, you know, or creating food and delivering. And, and um, you really want your neighbor not able to afford healthcare and get a COVID test because they can't yeah, afford really. it? Like, or like it's to your benefit that they have healthcare, right? It's to your benefit that they are taken care of. And you know, those extra billions that are going to certain leaders now, like they don't, it doesn't change their life at all, you know? So mm-hmm. you go from 80 billion to hundred billion or whatever some of them are, that 20 billion, it doesn't change their life at all, but that would change so much, you know, passing that around would hugely impact so many people. And so I feel like we have to figure this out, Sharon, the, the wealth, the way the wealth has been created and way it's just like, the top very, very small percent own like increasingly more and more every year. Um, and the pie is just much smaller for everybody else. I don't think it serves either side. And of course, you know, people need to work and I'm not saying everybody should just get money for staying at home and watching Netflix. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that's the answer. Hey, all right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, but I do think it's really important that we look at what is a fair and just, and just system. And we realize that technology is changing this entire game. It's funny, you know, when you just use that example, like, do you really want your neighbor not to be able to afford a COVID test? I thought, well, the consequence of that ultimately is that you can't have a neighbor. 
You know, yeah. you can't take the risk of somebody uh, with less. Yeah. And, and so your life gets smaller and smaller and smaller and more contracted. And it makes it that much more difficult to find oneself in one another because you're not hanging out with the other. No. And if you are hanging out with the other, you're, you have all kinds of suspicions about them and what their intentions are and why they're hanging out with you. And, yeah. um, you know, and it's like some of that is natural, but like, let's not increase that, you know? And, and when I was a kid, that didn't exist to the same mm-hmm. degree it exists now. And in some ways, I think social media hasn't helped because we give these projections of of success, right? And happiness mm-hmm. and these very um, detailed pictures of us in this whatever scene. But rarely will we show that we're arguing or depressed or unhappy here. You know, it's mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. it doesn't give a clear picture. And I think, you know, we often saw as happiness and success is the person who made it, right? The person who found a way to rise to the top and and make all of this wealth. And yet, if they were really honest, and I know enough people in that uh, place to, mm-hmm. to know, it's it can be extremely lonely and isolating. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then without love, without trust, without sangha, without community, you know, life isn't, it's just hollow. And so I mm-hmm. think, how do we restructure our tax system? How do we restructure our... Um, our financial system so that it, it allows the individual to be supported. And if you win, you win hot, you win big, but not at the expense of everybody else. And that you Mm -hmm. can, you can live in the world without a bunch of private security guards (laughs) having to, you know, having to control every place you go. It's um, so I'm, I'm super passionate about, about what does that look like to kind of just look at again, how do we create a fair and just system? And, um, particularly looking at minorities and African Americans that have been just hurt for so many years, like what is what is a fair response to that mm-hmm. pain? And maybe it's financial, or maybe it's more than financial. I don't know, but I feel like we need to kind of look at America's wound. And I feel like one of the beautiful things about COVID is we're all home and we're all looking mm-hmm. at our screens and we're seeing things that we might've tried to avoid before and we're, and social media has helped in that sense because we can see videos, right. And we can see pictures, we can see uh, experiences that people are having that, that I don't know if we've ever really had such a glare on the fact that, that there's certain groups in our country that have, that are continue to be treated so unfairly. Mm-hmm. Well, there are certain groups that are not at home, you know, because yeah. They are so-called essential workers, which is a glamorous way of saying we need them and they're at risk because they're not able to quarantine. Yeah, and they're keeping our society going. I mean, the nurses, the doctors, uh, the restaurant workers, uh, cleaners. I mean, there's so many people that are so essential. And that's what I mean when we look at, you know, policies, which is like there, there needs to be some kind of fair system that realizes the importance of our agriculture workers mm-hmm. um, and that it doesn't, it's not winner to take all, <laughs> you know, that, that there's a way of, uh, I mean, I would be so important to increase teachers pay, for example, you know, I think the teachers who work with kids, I mean, they're doing the work, they're doing such important work. Like they're taking care of the next generation. Like let's give them what they need. 
Um, let's make it an honorable position. Let's make sure that they're, they're taken care of. Um, so I think in order to do that, though, you have to have honest conversations and we have to have leaders that really care about those issues. And I, I'm hopeful that this next election in the U.S., um, that there'll be a rise of people that say, you know what, character matters, decency matters, and I want somebody in office that I can look to and feel like they're honorable, even if I disagree with some of their policies, that they, they're honorable and character matters. And um, I think it's been an amazing experience to have Donald Trump as our president. <laughs> like, it's, it's been quite the experiment. Um, and I think we've learned a lot. Um, mm-hmm. I've learned a lot from that process. And um, I think there was an entire group that was absolutely exiled nothing against Obama's administration per se, but I think there was a big group of people in, in red states and blue collar workers that were kind of missed, to be honest, mm-hmm. and felt exiled, felt like they didn't have a voice. Mm-hmm. And to be honest with you, Sharon, like after the election, when, when Trump was elected, I was like, wow, there are so many people that think differently than me. <laughs> like I never knew this. And to be honest, it's always I really didn't give a shit about what the middle of America thought about things. You know, I was just in my own world and my living in California, doing my thing. And then after that, I was like, wow, I, I need to really understand that the viewpoints that so many other people have that are different than mine. Uh-huh. And my dream and my hope is that we can have a president who knows how to build bridges and knows how to create that sense of we that I think our country is really starving for because I think we're missing something really essential, which is just what does it feel like to be Americans? And I grew up in the in uh, rural West Texas, a, a city called Lubbock. And, say, you know, what do you mean you don't care about the middle of the well, country? Well, I just had lost sight of them. Right. I, uh, I just, they just weren't in my focus. But I, I, you're right. I, I grew up and at one point, Lubbock County had voted more for... Uh, for Bush, higher percentage than any county in the country. <laughs> I think it was George W. Like intense conservatives, intense conservatives. And then I moved to California and I'm around mainly a bunch of liberals. Um, but they were the kind, some of the kindest people I've ever met were in that town, you know, growing up. Really good hearted people. And I think that's our nature. Most of us are really good hearted people. And the news media and other things have kind of created these stories about kind of that demonize the other person mm-hmm. and to feel like, oh, they're out to steal this or they're out to steal that. And my hope and my wish is that we can come together as Americans and realize we all share a certain common humanity. We all have pain. We all have suffering. We all wish for happiness. We all, we all want some level of economic opportunity. Um, and we all have something to bring to the table. So that's that's my hope is that we can voice that and that our leaders will embody and respond to that. Do you find like within the meditation community that as you um, talk about electoral politics, as you talk about participation and engagement, that people don't like that to some degree? (laughs) Well, I would say two things. I'd say um, I do feel like there's some core things like voting that I really expect people to do. At the Mm -hmm. same time, I also realize that the political domain isn't everyone's gig, right? Like they want to talk about history or they want to talk about television or they like, I also realize that it's not everybody's thing, right? Everybody just has different things that they're passionate about. So I don't want to assume that everybody should kind of be interested in the things I'm interested in. 
um, at the same time, and I think it's changing. I think there, there at least used to be, I think, more of a sense that if you were concerned and involved in the political sphere, what's going on in society, that you were attached and that that was mm-hmm. just going to lead to suffering and that you should be more, practice more equanimity and not be so engaged in, in results of, of actions. And I'm with that. I actually believe that the best actions come from equanimity, but they also come from taking a stand when it's time to take a stand. And I feel like the challenge that we have today is how do we be engaged with a loving heart and how do we be involved with a loving heart and how do we fight for what's right with a loving heart? And of course, it's out of our control. And of course, life is always uncertain and it's important to, it's important to speak our voice. And so that's, that's my sense. And I do feel like there was a tendency in the meditation world to be more judgmental, but more, more of the people I know are, are realizing like, oh, there's this world that we create together and I want to be more active force in how that world looks and that there's people that depend on me, particularly people who I might never see, but who are really dependent on uh, certain policies. And I feel like, and, and climate change, like we're all interconnected. And if America doesn't lead the world in climate change, you know, things could look really bad and Maybe that's what needs to happen, right? Who knows? Maybe that's the process, but at least it's important for us to share our voice and to do our best to present what we think is a livable approach and livable world. That's beautiful. And I think that um, when you said that about climate change, I just thought about early on in the pandemic, I was talking to somebody and uh, you know, I came up here to Barry with my snow boots on right. March. <laughs> you mentioned that. <laughs> two weeks and I'm still here. And, uh, you know, I, I was sort of looking for um, some perspective, some brightness or something when I was talking to this person. And and they said, well, you know, this is barely like scratching the surface of what it's going to be like when climate change really hits. And yeah. I said, you know but it's true i mean and if we can work together as a world to address covid maybe that will give us some strength to work together as a world to address climate change um because i do think it's it's going to it's already impacting you know different ecosystems and it's going to be a big one and i don't know if necessarily the earth will survive right there's no there's no kind of question that the earth won't survive but the question is will humans And um, I do think there's a lot about interconnectedness and about, um, you know, that our actions matter, that climate change expresses. And I hope, I hope we can be able to kind of look clearly, like, you know, one of the things I love about meditation, is just like, can you see clearly what is, (laughs) right, without a story on top of it? And I've learned so much from you, Sharon, and other teachers about like, can we just see clearly what is, let's not try and change it first, let's not try and figure it out, but just let's see clearly what is, and then let's tune into what action, if any, we mm-hmm. are inspired to take to, to alleviate suffering when we can alleviate suffering to the best of our ability. And I think climate change is just such a, 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 an amazing test for all of us to be able to see clearly what's happening. And then in each one of us to, if, if there is anything, to follow that inspiration to address that in whatever way we can. What do you think the positive role for technology might be? Because a lot of times people uh, these days, including myself, you know, in, in talking to people, just talk about moderation, you know, like yeah. maybe I don't have to be on Twitter 22 hours a day. <laughs> maybe I can go 
back to 16, you know, or something like that. So it's interesting. This I change almost monthly on this question, you know, and I go back and forth. You know, sometimes I think it's this powerful tool and I, I, I get inspired, you know, on Instagram or Twitter or Facebook or TikTok now. Um, like I, I, I mean, TikTok, I've never been on TikTok. Oh, yeah. Check it out. It's interesting. You know, there's... Well, I can. What do we have, like 40 days or something like that? Yeah. Before it's banned or something? Yeah, we'll see. It may not be around too long. Um, but you know, I get inspired. I love the fact that ordinary people have a platform. Mm-hmm. Like right now, if you, if when I was a kid, it, you in order to have a platform, you had to have a show on the four networks, right? Like that's how you had a platform. And now you have these young people, old people, people from all over the world. They have platforms to speak their voice and to be seen and to engage. And to me, that's just a really beautiful thing that 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 people have some kind of voice. You can do a video from your phone and post it and all kinds of people can see it and Mm -hmm. and impact things. And um, George Floyd is an example of this horrific event that might never have been brought to our country's awareness without a phone um, that was there and and people who cared. So on that level, I love the the fact that, that ordinary people now have a platform. And it's not just about the big networks deciding to put you on their show, right? Like when I was a kid, like, could you get on ABC News? You know, it's always a big deal. Or could you get on this network? And, and the powers that be kind of controlled that. And now um, there's a people-centered approach that's really amazing. So that's a, the one side. The other side is I think it's really helpful to, to understand that when, when you or I sign on to any of these networks, you know, some of the world's greatest social psychologists, engineers, neuroscientists, uh, marketers are all trying to figure out how do we keep her on longer, <laughs> right? How do we figure out a way to keep her attention with us? Because if we took our attention away from the platforms, they dissolve, right? Uh-huh. Facebook, Instagram, they don't create anything. Like if our attention is pulled away, the whole house of cards falls, so mm-hmm. they need our attention to feed the system. So, and they know that. So they have to be very creatively thinking about like, what do we show Sharon or what do we show Soren? Or how do we get them enticed so that they keep their attention sustained with us? So we, we want their attention. And so I think this is where the friction comes, <laughs> Sharon, because we have this, it's almost like we're up against this like enormously sophisticated force that knows everything we've ever liked and and clicked and done anything. And it's like, wants us to stay feeding that system. And we want to be on it, but we also have our life to live and we have our own well-being and our own body to tend to and our family to tend to and nature to tend to. And so I think we also have to understand that we're up against a very challenging situation, you know, which is you look at why does Netflix give us four seconds to decide before the next movie rolls? You know, why does YouTube automatically play the next video right after the one ends? Because they don't mm-hmm. want us to have time to think how we want to spend the, that next that mm-hmm. next hour, right? Like the time to think is kind of the enemy. And so I think we have to realize that there's a very sophisticated system going on that's trying to keep us, um, trying to keep our attention so that's happening. And we also have to respect the beautiful voice that so many of these platforms are allowing people to have. So I try to hold those together and somehow trying to manage what is, what's the right way forward. Um, when we were at a, I'll just tell one other story. I was uh, 
Mark Benioff is a founder of, or CEO of Salesforce used to hold these um, kind of salons at his house. And one of the mm-hmm. time uh, Thich Nhat Hanh was there and um, before his stroke, of course. And, um, and so in the room, I just happened to be invited, but in the room you had all the, most of the top leaders in tech, like all in his living room, like kind of sitting close and mm-hmm. a few invited guests like me, there's maybe 30, 35 of us. And Thich Hans talking and going on and telling stories and just teaching as he usually does. And then at one point I remember he paused and he, he kind of looked around the room at everybody. And he's like, if you're not in the business to help people connect with themselves and to help connect with nature, you're in the wrong business. Mm. <laughs> and it just really hit me. And he was saying this to all these tech leaders. If, if you're not in the business of helping people connect with themselves and helping to connect with nature... You're in the wrong business. Um, now he said more that time, and you know he, there was a lot else, but that that one phrase really connected with me. And I think you know that's something to really look at. You know, can technology help us connect with ourselves and help us connect with nature, or or is it taking us away from ourselves and taking us away from nature? Or is it helping us connect to community and a sense of us and a sense of shared values, or is it taking away from that? And I do, I am excited that there's a next generation of technology that might be created that didn't rely on ads so much and that actually mm-hmm. brought forth those questions. And I'm hopeful that there's a younger generation and maybe in partnership with the older generation that we can maybe uh, see in the next five years or so some new efforts that are a little more mindfulness-based and that aren't so much dependent on the attention economy, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Well, I have a lot of hope, you know, in the sense that um, I was reading a friend's book about um, all these people who ended up uh, in the 60s and very early 70s getting drawn by Ramdas. Mm. Ramdas's teacher ended up going to India and studying with his teacher named Curly Baba. And, um, and there was a common theme through many of those stories, which was radio, which I thought was very interesting. Oh, you know, interesting. somebody heard. Ramdas yeah. on a BAI in New York, a kind of alternative network, and they invited him to come to uh, Montreal. I don't even know if he physically went. He to come to Montreal and be on another radio show. And this young woman heard him on that radio show and decided to go to India. You know, and and the ways people stepped out of their kind of comfortable, familiar terrain, yeah, and were exposed to a world that was bigger or different was yeah. often through the radio, which I just found an incredibly interesting sociological. And mine was through cassette tapes. I was in West uh-huh. Texas as a 15-year-old, and somehow I got these Dharma Seed tape library tapes from my dad and, and Ram Dass's Journey to the East talk and Stephen Levine and, and you and Jack Cornfield. And so, I, yeah, so technology brought the Dharma and it's bringing the Dharma throughout yeah. the world. And I think that's, that is an amazing component. You know, so there's some iteration of it for our time, which is uh, not going to be cassette tapes. Yeah, you know? not going to be cassette tapes. But I think I, for me, it's just, I just try to honor all of it. You know, can I honor the system that's set up for, to create the addiction? <laughs> can I honor that? And can I also honor the beautiful aspects of it and the fact that so many people are now getting uh, turned on to meditation and other things because of technology. I, I do wonder, though, just between us and your listeners, <laughs> uh, I do worry, 
I do worry about all the data, Sharon, and I worry about how well they know us and how much we think we're using them. And it's like two hours later, we're like, whoa, what did I just do? And that's just going to become more and more sophisticated. Um, yeah. That I do, yeah. I do have concerns about that. Um, and it's hard for and them to turn one, that off. One way of, I mean, it is worrisome, of course, and it, but one way of uh, perhaps countering that is by helping people know themselves very well. It's like I wrote yeah. a book before Real Change called Real Love. So I was, mm-hmm. you know, reading a lot of things about love and I am of a certain age now. You like real uh, things. I like real things. <laughs> yeah, theme. But, you know, I got to be older and all of a sudden I'm getting these ads for um, our emails and spam uh, for like silver singles. And I thought, what's that about? I'm not like, dating apps or anything. Like, what's that? And I realized, oh, I was looking up all these books on love. Yeah. And, I'm older, you know, and they put it together in some really bizarre way. (laughs) Well, you know, that's cute. Yeah, I think it's it's a question about values. And I do think that, you know, I'm hopeful that companies will take a a bigger stand and that we can Mm -hmm. support the companies that take a more conscious approach and that some companies will create guidelines and say, you know what, we want you on our social platform, we need to do ads, and we promise to only do X number of ads a day, or we promise to only do this. You know, right now it seems like they just keep putting as much as we'll take. But I do, I do hope that there's a way in which we can support some of the more conscious businesses that says, yes, we need to make a profit, but we don't need to like go to all these crazy methods to keep your attention and to ping you anytime you're not on for a few days and to, uh, you know, give you all this sense of of loss. And I think that's that's easily what happens in social media. It looks like everyone else is living this great life and having this happy life. And then you just feel more miserable about yourself. Um, so I think it's this beautiful Pandora box that's been opened. And I think the only real answer is we have to evolve as people. You know, I agree with you. It's like if as we mature and as we grow in ourselves, um, we'll know better how to use it. And and hopefully more companies, the next generation of companies will emerge and there'll be a clear relationship. So like right now, if you're on Twitter, Instagram, what's the relationship? Like, well, I get it for free and they give me ads. It's kind of the relationship, right? Like we're, we're, we're exchanging attention. They get my attention and I get kind of this free thing. But there's no boundaries around that currently, right? How many ads? Mm-hmm. How often the ads? And so I do feel like there's, there's another conversation that could be had that's like, here's what we need to make a profit. But we also understand that you don't want too many ads coming at you. And I, that's the world that I see is where companies can make some profit, but they don't need to make the profit that they're making. You know, it's just, it just, it takes, so when you saw Facebook's quarterly profits just went up right recently. And all that means is one thing. They're doing a really good job getting us to look at our phones and click ads, right? That's like, that's translation of increased profits is they're doing a great job of us looking at our phones. And um, and I want Facebook to do well, and I have no things against them per se, but I do think we need to discover other models of revenue that is not based on us. The current system, I think, has a lot of weakness to it. And um, I want Facebook to do well, and I also feel like there has to be a point where we're like, you know what? No, <laughs> you know, like, like we have to understand that there's some other choices here. So I am hopeful that there's a next generation of companies that will merge or that Facebook and Instagram will shift. 
Yeah, well, elected officials might have something to do with that they as might. well. So they might. They, do you, yeah. Is a voting initiative that's happening? So what's you know, vote kindness? One of the things that I've been exploring, Sharon, which is what's what's the voice I want to have as we come up to the next election? And I will do my best to, you know, give money to different causes and encourage friends and people to vote. Um, and I just began to kind of sit with it. What is it? Is there anything else, Soren, you know, that you want to kind of be a part of or launch? And I had this, this phrase came to me, vote kindness. I thought, that's kind of a weird phrase. And so I went up and I looked and the vote kindness URL, votekindness.com was free. And Sharon, I've had so many ideas of different websites. Never has the URL.com URL usually been free, right? Like somebody has taken it. And I guess I'm the only person in for a while who's ever had the idea that vote kindness should be a thing. But I go there and the URL's free. So I'm like, oh, that's interesting. So I go to Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and I get all the all the the channels, right? And they're all for nobody's had taken them. They're all available. And so I was so excited. It's like, wow, I I I First time in a long time, I actually had an idea where the where all these nobody else has the, has the channels. Um, so I just kind of sat with that for a while, like a year or two years. It's just kind of sat there. I was like, okay, well, I have all this. And then as the election appeared, and as I was realizing, like just the kind of things that uh, President Trump stood for, and realizing, like you know what, there are Republicans I would absolutely vote for. I tend to vote Democrat, but there's absolutely a, Dem- a Republicans I would I would have voted for, would vote for. And what really matters to me? Well, I was like, well, what matters to me is policy, but also what matters to me is character. And I think there's a lot of liberals and conservatives out there that really believe character should matter too. And why don't we lift up this fact that yes, we want a president who's or a senator or congressperson or whoever who's smart and who's uh, intelligent and who's uh, committed and who's passionate. But of the, let's say, 10 things that we want, Shouldn't kindness be up there, you know, is part of those 10? And so um, I tried to think of another name, but I just like, all right, we're going to put, let's put this up, vote kindness. Let's put kindness on the ticket. And if you're not sure who to vote for and you're like, well, this person's this way, this person's that way, maybe the question for us to ask is, well, who's the most kind? Like who, mm-hmm. who, who carries himself with dignity? Who actually listens to the other uh, politician that they're debating? You know, who actually gives a compliment to the other politician that they're engaging with? Like who, who lives honorably? And maybe if we, enough of us stood forth and said, vote kindness matters, maybe the politicians would listen and think, wow, you know, instead of just being negative about the person that I'm running with, maybe I can actually be dignified again with them and, mm-hmm. and have respect and treat them with compassion and still disagree, but treat them with compassion. And I think what's happened over the last four years in particular is the negativity has just gotten up and up and the name calling and just the meanness. So vote kindness is a way of saying, you know what, who cares what political party you're from? Like who cares, um, who cares what political party you're from? Let's, stand for that kindness and decency and integrity matters in this in this next election that's beautiful so it's hashtag vote kindness and you have a url and you have yeah we have hashtag vote kindness uh and we also have votekindness.com where people can come and we also created a people's pledge you know so one of the things would be what can each of us do and so we have a pledge that says you know during this political season i vow to listen deeply to other people 
I vow to uh, treat other people with respect. So uh, we have a change.org petition, if you will, that just is like, hey, count me in. I'm going to be on the side of dignity and on the side of deep listening and on the side of understanding so that we can kind of stand for what matters to us and kind of see if we can create a movement around that and that maybe that will slowly impact the powers that be. Um, so I, I was just seeing how everything was becoming so negative and I was just like, all right, what is, what is some response to that? So about kindness is that response and yeah, you're welcome to check out the website. We have t-shirts, <laughs> we have yeah. a pledge. Um, it's just, you know, it's a fun thing to do, Sharon. I haven't really done a campaign before, so I'm learning a lot. <laughs> They're not easy. They're not easy. Go sign that pledge. Yeah, they're they're not easy. Uh, the people's pledge on on change.org. We just launched it today, and there's a few hundred hundred people who signed it. But you know, one of the thing is like, let's not just ask our our people to do. Like, let's let's pledge to each do what we ex- want them to do, right? And uh, make it super simple. And my dream, um, Sharon, would be that both presidential candidates or however many presidents have all sign the pledge. And that mm-hmm. President Trump would sign the pledge. I, I vow to listen deeply to other people. I vow to treat people with respect. I vow to, you know, not name call. Like, it's kind of like what you would sign when if you went to kindergarten. <laughs> right? And so if somebody doesn't sign the pledge, that says something. So my hope would be, you know, that we can just get this out in the world and that people will will sign it and it'll kind of be, be, a, be a positive force. Um, so, yeah, thanks for asking about that. And um doing my best to to get it out in the world in, in whatever way possible. That's fabulous. So to close, would you lead us in a sitting? Absolutely. We all jump off and, and it, find that pledge. It appears my little dog, he's about 10 pounds. I have a dog that's 110 pounds, a Bernese Mountain dog. They also have a dog that's 10 pounds, a uh, <laughs> uh, little um, Catan. The dog with 10, the dog that's 10 pounds, because he's so small, he's got this really loud bark. <laughs> <laughs> and he's super uh, protective, which is so interesting because he's just, he's got, he's small, but mighty. So, uh, but he seems <laughs> to have calmed down for the moment. So apologies for him. Um, so yeah, I'd invite um, people to take a moment and just bring your attention inside in whatever way feels right for you. Uh, if you're driving a car, it might be good to not do this or pull over to the side of the road. Uh, And uh, if you're comfortable letting your eyes close or lowering your gaze, I invite you to do so. And see if you can, again, bring your attention from kind of taking in the external world to just attending to your internal world. And taking a couple of deep breaths and settling in your body. And first, Simply noticing what's here right now. And as best you can, seeing if you can welcome or allow, give permission to whatever it is you're experiencing in this moment. There may be a very active mind with all kinds of thoughts happening. There might be places of tension in your body that draw your attention. There might be a feeling of tenderness and openness in your heart. I'm going to invite you, whatever that experience is, to whatever degree possible, you welcome it. 
just like you might welcome an old friend who surprisingly showed up at your door after many years. And as you welcome whatever's here right now, invite you to connect with this power, this rhythm, this flow of your breath and your body. Not trying to control or change or fix the breath. Just allowing it, just like you allowed that other experience, allowing the breath to move through your body in whatever way it needs to. And seeing again as best you can to see if it's possible to relax into that flow or rhythm of the breath. And tap into that rhythm or flow Again, without needing to change or control or make it different. Noticing how each moment changes. One moment there's a bark in the background. <laughs> Another moment the breath is arising. Another moment the breath is falling. They're all happening within this expanded awareness. The bark, the sensations, the thoughts the breath, all happening within this field of awareness. And that these experiences change from one moment to the next. And can we be present as much as possible for each of these moments? Welcoming the sounds, doors closing, whatever appears in this field. And seeing if you can notice while everything is changing, is there something that doesn't change? Is there an awareness that continues regardless of the content of the mind or the nature of the body? Is there awareness that's present no matter the contents or the experiences that you're having. And the contents of your mind can be very tumultuous, just like a storm on the ocean, or a loud dog barking in the background. But if you see if you can, if you go a little deeper, if you go 40, 50 feet below those waves in the ocean, It can be very still, 
And I'd like to end this meditation by connecting to this global community that we're in now who are all experiencing some level of this COVID-19 experience. And realizing there's people who are thriving and who are happy. And there's a lot of people who are isolated and lonely, haven't been touched in five or six months, or haven't even some of haven't even seen another person in five or six months. And that we're all in a shared challenge together. And I invite you to, to whatever degree you can, just see if you can kind of send out this wish for well-being to all these people through all these continents, people who are old or people who are young, people who are educated, people who are not educated, people who agree with your political philosophy, people who disagree with your political philosophy, um, people who vote, people who don't vote. <laughs> Um, people who care about what you care about, people who don't care about what you care about. Um, but just for this moment, embracing this whole realm of humanity across the entire world. And as best you can, feeling your connectedness to this larger community of people beyond your family or your nation or your community where you live. And sending out a wish for well-being, a wish for healing, a wish for love, a wish for realization, a wish to be free of suffering, to this global community to which you are part of. And when you're ready, you can gently open your eyes or look up from your gaze. And we are back in this moment. Mm. Well, thank you so much for uh, talking and and for the meditation. It was really wonderful. It's great to talk to it's you. It's always good to talk to you, Sharon. And thank you so much for inviting me on your podcast, which I've heard about for a long time. And so it's an honor <laughs> to be on the Meta Meta podcast. And um, yeah, and also just a really deep bow to you, Sharon, for all that you give to the world and all that you do. And um, I feel like, you know, you're such a great example of, of, uh, of heartfulness in the world. Um, and I'll just tell a quick story if I can, where I was interviewing Jack and Trudy, uh, earlier this week, Jack Cornfield and Trudy Goodman. Mm -hmm. And we started talking about, um, a kind of the process of mindfulness. And at one point Trudy said, well, you know what? It's really about loving awareness. And when Sharon mm -hmm. Salzberg wrote her book, <laughs> Loving <laughs> Kindness, it changed a lot for me. You know, it's like she came out with this voice for love that really inspired us all. I and mean, it was just a really sweet compliment and really sweet honoring. And I was like, you're right. You know, Sharon has held a special place in our community of, of mindfulness, of heartfulness, of engaged, uh, use the word activism, but engagement in the world. And um, it's been an honor to be your friend. And I'm so glad that you uh, somehow trusted our connection early on and introduced me to so many people. Because uh, I don't know why else you would be. I was like, 
this is weird. <laughs> She's like being very nice to me as if we're friends. Uh, <laughs> That's so sweet. Yeah. Well, I really was honoring what you're doing. Yeah. And, and it was like, it's beautiful. I mean, it's really, uh, you're really doing great, great work. And for those of you listening, if you want to learn more about Soren's work, you can visit Wisdom2, that's the number two, wisdom2conference.com or, and or, yeah. votekindness.com, which I'm really excited about. Thank you. Um, yeah, it's, it's fantastic. And thank you, everybody who's listening. This has been the 2020 election series on the Meta Hour podcast for the Be Here Now Network. May you be safe, be happy, be healthy, and may you live with ease. Hey folks, thanks for listening. Real Change is available September 1st in hardcover, ebook, and audiobook formats. Learn more at realchangebook.com.